Well, I don't know how many of you follow the royal family news. I don't. But they do make good sermon illustrations. But when Meghan Markle got engaged to Prince Harry, there was a lot that needed to change in her life. If you don't keep up with the British royal family, please forgive me. Uh, But if you do, you'll know, you'll remember that Meghan Markle was not your typical British royal. For starters, she was not British. She's American. She comes from a mixed-race family. She was an actress with her own lifestyle brand. She had a huge social media following. And, of course, she was divorced. And none of that was particularly well looked upon in royal circles, was it? Now, on the one hand, what did Meghan Markle need to do to become royal? She just needed to marry Harry. Her status changed the moment she married Harry. But on the other hand, there was a lot of things in her life that actually needed to change in order for her to embody what it meant to be royal. To be truly royal, she needed to live like a royal. Which meant saying goodbye to acting, saying goodbye to social media, and following a whole host of strict rules imposed on all members of the royal family. To be royal, Meghan Markle needed to live a life worthy of a royal. Today in Ephesians 4, Paul begins to show us that it's the same for us as Christians. Right there in verse 1, Paul urges us to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And the first three chapters of Ephesians have all been about that calling, that calling which we have received as followers of Jesus. The glorious change in status that we enjoy because Jesus died for our sins. Paul's letter so far has all been about us being called out of death into life, us being called out of sin into holiness, receiving forgiveness, being made holy, being acceptable to God. Ephesians so far is about how we were nobodies, but that God invited us to be his own dear children. Our calling as Christians is far greater than being welcomed into the British royal family. We have been welcomed into God's family. We've been adopted as his own children. We have uninterrupted access to God, the creator of the universe. This is the calling we have received if we love Jesus. And so the first half of Ephesians has all been about our new life, our new status, our new identity. Today we move into the second half of Ephesians and the message of Ephesians 4 to 6 is live like it. You have been made royal, so live like a royal. You have been made a part of God's family, so behave like you belong there. And that's going to change every aspect of our lives. Just like it did for Meghan Markle, our change in status is going to impact our careers, it's going to impact our hobbies, it's going to impact our home life, it's going to impact our social life. But where Paul begins in this passage this morning, it's how our new identity changes our behaviour here in church. 
He's going to go on to talk about all sorts of other spheres of life where our new identity shapes our behaviour. But today, he's looking at church. If we're going to live a life worthy of our calling, there's three things that Paul says we're going to do as members of Jesus' church. If you grabbed an outline, you'll see them on the back there. Keep the unity. Serve with diversity. Grow to maturity. There are three headings this morning. Unity, diversity, maturity. We'll start with unity, but how about I pray. Our Lord God, thanks for your word. Thanks that you speak to us, that you reveal your will to us, and that through your word, you show us how to live. You show us what you have done to enable us to live. Lord, help us hear your word this morning, we pray, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Right, unity. Yes, the first way that we can show that we're a part of God's family is by treating each other as if we actually like each other. Now, I don't know what your family at home is like. Maybe unity isn't a standout feature of your family at Christmas lunch. But for God, unity is important. Unity is critical in God's family. Because we learned in chapter 1, didn't we? Ephesians chapter 1, we learned that the end goal of God's plan for the whole world is to bring unity to all things under Jesus. He's uniting everything under King Jesus. And so in chapter 3, we learned that Jesus bled and died to bring Jews and Gentiles together, to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus cares about unity. And this is what Paul continues in chapter 4 here in verse 4, where he says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We just can't escape our oneness, can we? The church is united We worship one God. We all have the one spirit. We all have one hope that we are living for. Which means it doesn't matter whether you're Presbyterian or Baptist or Pentecostal or Anglican. Doesn't matter if you're from the Western world or from the East. Whether our church services are traditional or whether they look more like a dance party. No matter the difference that you can find within churches and between churches, the church of Jesus Christ is one because it's his and he made it one. Jesus has given unity to his church. And so the challenge for us is to keep it that way, to maintain that unity. Because unity counts for very little unless it's actually expressed Which means that church unity is more than simply not fighting. Now, I've spoken with married couples who never fight. But nor do they ever cuddle or kiss or tell each other, I love you. They don't sleep in the same bed. They don't share finances. They don't have any meaningful conversations with each other at all. They're not united in any sense of the word. Just because someone is married doesn't mean they're united. They've just learned to tolerate each other quietly. 
Unity counts for nothing unless it's actually expressed. A piece of paper that says you're married means nothing. Marriage is about expressing that unity. And it's the same here in church. Unless we actually express our unity, it means nothing. Which means that rocking up to church every now and then and then shooting through as soon as church is over is not going to cut it. Church unity requires effort. In fact, Paul tells us in verse 3 that we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says make every effort because that's what it's going to take. Unity is hard work. And unless we strive to maintain unity, well, we'll inevitably drift towards disunity. Now, we may not fight. We may not shout at each other. But eventually, we will arrive at the point where we simply don't care. When we have no love for our brothers and sisters. When we happily attend church every Sunday and put on a smile, but have no deep relationships with anyone else there. That's where we're going to end up unless we make every effort to keep the unity that Jesus has given us. Well, how do we do that? Paul tells us in verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And you'll notice that none of those things are things that you can do by yourself. You can't be humble by yourself at home. Being humble is something that you express in relationship. And because Christianity is relational, because God calls us into relationship with himself, but also into relationship with each other, these are characteristics that we all need to express here in church. It was through Jesus' humility, Jesus' gentleness, Jesus' patience and long-suffering love that the church was formed. And it is through humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering love that we will stay united. So let me ask you, how are you going at keeping church unity? Are you humble in the ways that you speak about other denominations? I've come across this a bit. Do you think being Presbyterian makes you better than your brothers and sisters down the road at the Christian Outreach Centre or down the road at the Baptist Church or wherever it is? Do your words reflect true humility? Because spiritual pride kills unity. So let's repent of that today. Are you gentle in the ways that you express your opinions about decisions here in church? Are you patient with each other? Are you patient with the person that's difficult, that's hard to love? Or do you just find it easier to ignore them, to not waste your time with those people? Do you genuinely love? And do you show that through your actions? This is what it's going to take to preserve the unity that Jesus has given his church. This is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. 
There's some challenging words for me there. I'm sure they're challenging words for you too. But as Paul continues in verse 7, he's eager to point out that while we are united in faith, that we worship the one God, that doesn't mean that we're all the same. Verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Here Paul tells us that Jesus has deliberately apportioned his grace. He has given gifts to each of us differently so that we can complement each other as we serve. Jesus' church is an orchestra and he's given us each different instruments to play. He hasn't handed us all violins. Praise God, because that would be awful. So instead he gives us all different gifts Now, when we see spiritual gifts, often the thing that comes to mind is sort of special abilities or skills that you might have. We think of skills and abilities like teaching or singing or, you know, healing as gifts that God gives to his people. They are. But the New Testament concept of gifts is way bigger than just abilities. Throughout the New Testament, we see all sorts of things being referred to as gifts of God because everything that we have is a gift from God, isn't it? Which means our circumstances can be a gift. Opportunities that we have can be a gift. Our knowledge can be a gift. Our experiences, all of these things are gifts that God has given to people in his church. Leadership skills are a gift, but so is marriage, and so is singleness for that matter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Being able to cook is a gift, but so is your experience of growing up in a broken family. Earning a high salary is a gift that God has given you, but so is your experience of living paycheck to paycheck. Whatever your gifts, whatever skills, whatever abilities, whatever opportunities, experiences, whatever circumstances God has given you, the point here is that he's given them to you deliberately so that you might use them to benefit his church. Which, put simply, means we need you here. (laughs) Because while it's wonderful that God hasn't given us all a violin to play, you could be the only violin we have. God has put you here deliberately. He has apportioned his grace as he saw fit. He's made you a great encourager because he knows that this church needs your encouragement. He's given you the ability to cook because he knows that cooking is going to bring his church together. He's given you money because he knows that his church needs money in order to proclaim his gospel. He's given you the gift of a healthy marriage. Because he knows that his church needs a role model. Someone who can demonstrate the beauty of Christ's love for his church. I hope you can see my point here. It's no accident that you are here in church today. God doesn't do accidents. He put you here and he gifted you specifically so that you might use your gifts to benefit his church. He's given you the tools. He wants you to use them.
One of the dangers that we can have uh, as a church with a paid minister is that we can easily fall into the habit of treating the minister and letting the minister do, do all the ministry. That's not the way Jesus has equipped his church, and that's what Paul tells us here in verse 11. In this discussion about how God has equipped his church with gifts, he says in verse 11, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Did you see that? Why does God give church leaders? Not to do everything. Verse 12, it's to equip his people, to equip the church for works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up. Now, the NIV, which I'm using, uses the word service, uh, but you might have a different translation. It might use the word ministry. That's because those two words are actually the same word. They're the same thing. And so when Paul is saying, uh, what Paul is saying is that every member of this church is a minister. God gave his church pastors to equip the congregation of ministers for the work of ministry. Which means it's my job to help you to use your gifts to serve each other. If we go back to the orchestra illustration, my job isn't to play all the instruments. My job is to help you play yours. So how are you going at using your gifts to minister in our church? Again, I hope you can see that living a life worthy of our calling as followers of Jesus and children of God, involves far more than simply attending church. We are here as servants. God has given us the tools to serve. So how might you use your gifts to serve Jesus' church? Unity, diversity, Thirdly, if we're going to know how we can best use our gifts to serve the church, we first need to know what the goal of our serving is. There's no point in us deciding to serve the church with something that the church doesn't need, right? And so according to Jesus, the thing that the church needs, the whole reason that Jesus gives us gifts in the first place, is the church needs to grow up. Now look at verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Your gifts are given to you to help the church grow. And there's two ways a church can grow, isn't there? We can grow in number. More and more people can come to put their faith in Jesus and they can join us here in church. That's one way we can grow. Uh, But the other way, and the way that Paul's emphasising here, is that we can grow up. We can grow in maturity. No longer babies, but grown-ups. And he tells us what a mature church looks like in verse 13, where he says, we will have unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus. 
think as we grow and uh, sorry, as we know and believe the true gospel, we're growing up. But there's also a second way. Because maturity also means growing to be like Jesus. That's what attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ means. So essentially, if we're to use our gifts to help grow the church to maturity, we need to do things that will help each other know more about Jesus. And we need to do things that will help each other be more like Jesus. That is the goal of our serving. So how can you be growing our church in maturity? Well, Paul gives us a profoundly simple answer in verse 15. So that we're not the church that's uh, battered to and fro by all sorts of teaching. He says in verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. If you want our church to grow, if we as a church are to mature, the way that you can help do that is by speaking the truth in love to each other. Speak the truth in love, it's that simple. Have conversations about the gospel. You can do that over morning tea today. You can share with someone something that you've read in your Bible recently. You can join a Bible study group and discuss God's word. You can speak the truth of God's word to each other. You could do it this week by picking up the phone and calling one of our members who can't be with us to see how they're going. There are countless ways that we can do this, but we can all do it. We can all speak the truth in love. And that is what Jesus says our church needs. So let's make that the focus of our serving. Because there's lots of ways we can serve, and there's lots of important ways. It's wonderful that so many of you come and mow the lawns every week. It's great to serve tea and coffee to each other. It's great that people come in and clean the church. All of these are important things. But the thing our church needs more than any of those things is ministers like you who will speak the truth of the gospel to each other in love. That's what we need so that we might grow and become mature in Jesus. It's an incredibly high calling that we have, isn't it? We were dead in sin, far away from God, facing his wrath, and now God has made us his cherished possessions, his own dear children. It's a high calling. Now, it's time for us to live a life worthy of that calling. So let's strive to keep the unity. Let's serve with all our wonderful diversity with the goal of growing to maturity for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we're still, uh, we struggle to comprehend the magnitude of our calling, that you have called us into relationship with you, that you've invited us to be your children, even while we're rebelling against you. That blows our mind, Lord, but we know it's true. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live a life worthy of this calling.
Lord, I pray that you would help us to be serious about unity in the church. Help us to treat each other in a way that shows and expresses the unity that you have given us. We pray that you would help us to use the gifts that you've given us to serve your church and to help grow it to maturity. Lord, help us recognise all the different ways that you have gifted us, whether they be skills and abilities, whether they be circumstances. Lord, help us to use everything that you've given us to help grow your church, to help our brothers and sisters know you more and to live like you. Lord, we need you to help us do this, and so we ask by your spirit that you would help us live a life worthy of our amazing calling in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.